I would like to read the section that we're focused on this morning, and then uh, we'll, we'll explain what it means. So we'll look at Romans chapter 8. We'll be in the first few verses, and I'll go ahead and read verse 1 to about verse uh, verse 5, and uh, we'll, we'll get into it this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible uh, translation. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. May God bless you. As we look to this text this morning, we have uh, left Romans 7 uh, by way of where we are placed in the text. Uh, But there is a relationship between what is said uh, throughout all the chapters that we've studied, uh, but also as to what is said as it relates to the deliverance that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, Before, and it has been a while, before we looked at Romans 7, where there was a conflict between the two natures, where Paul uh, was uh, openly discussing the fact that the law is indeed good, that the law is indeed spiritual, that the law is meant to free the sinner, but in this sense it does not accomplish it because of the sinner. Uh, When I say that it's meant to free the sinner, I don't mean in the sense in which it functions like the gospel. I mean, it is supposed to show the sinner that they are utterly sinful. And so the law has come from God himself to reveal that, to reveal sin. And so by its implication, it not only reveals sin, it's meant to free the sinner and to liberate the captive. But the problem is that the Jews established the law unto themselves and the law that they established unto themselves was a law that uh, uh, it it basically heightened and emphasized their own self-righteousness. It was lawlessness disguised as religious law. And so when we get to the point where we are this morning, we're looking at the fact that we have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ have no condemnation. And that is uh, the title of my sermon this morning. It's No Condemnation. I would say that over the last couple of years that we have seen kind of what the world is uh, going through and what uh, even legislators and leaders and evangelical leaders and political leaders and everybody who's stepping forward, what they're trying to offer is freedom. What they're trying to offer is freedom. And I believe that that's happening because that's what people want most. They want freedom. Now, having said that, people define freedom in different ways. But that is the main thing that people want. Wars have been fought. Revolutions have been fought. Movements have been established, religious and otherwise. Institutions have come to play and societies have risen and fallen based on the idea that man wants to be free. But I'll tell you this morning and what we're going to look at in the few verses that we have is freedom does not come from policy. It does not come from men and it does not come from hiding in men. It does not come from man's institutions, 
and it certainly doesn't come from finances. It cannot be found in anything in anyone except Jesus Christ alone. And so that's what we're looking at when Paul sets it forward uh, in Romans chapter eight for us as he wrote this letter to the Romans. Freedom is not something we strive for in our own strength. I know that is a novel concept to many today, but it's not something we strive for in our own strength. It's not merchandising the idea of freedom. It's not politicizing the idea of freedom, and it's not punishing people so that they will arrive at freedom. It is a status that's granted to us apart from ourselves and on behalf of the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah. If we could define freedom in this way, it would be freedom from sin and freedom from God's wrath. That's what we need, and that's what we need most. And I believe that many are striving this hour for freedom that they want to attain on their own. They want to arrive at this free status, and they rightly so in some ways they want to be free from tyranny, or they want to be free from some kind of prohibition against them or against their movement. But I would say that that's not really the freedom that we uh, that we want to aspire to. That's not the freedom that Jesus offers us in this life. And I'll also tell you to make this more deceptive as we think about this in the annals of spiritual warfare. Typically, what so many are offering today is temporal freedom, not eternal freedom, temporal freedom, which is really slavery. And that's coming to you from many so-called pulpits. It's coming to you from many so-called pundits. And it's coming to you within every sphere that is part of the world system, even if those spheres claim to be a part of the kingdom of God and they're not. But I'll tell you, to offer people temporal freedom, which is really slavery, and to not deal with eternal freedom. Peter himself said that this was characteristic of false teachers. I want to bring him into this because I believe that Peter was also dealing with the fact that we need a no condemnation status from God himself based on what Christ has accomplished. You may turn with me, if you will, or you may uh, look at it or make note of it. Second uh, Peter, chapter two, verse 17 to 21, because, again, we live in a time where people want to promise you freedom or promise you that, OK, even though you're bound, we can make you free. And they're promising it some other way. Uh, verse 17 of Second Peter chapter 2, Peter characterizes such men. He says, these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Listen to this. Verse 19, promising them freedom. While they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome by this, he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. 
I would say on a massive, global, religious, political, economic level, you are seeing a departure from righteousness along these lines. I'm not standing before you this morning coming with a partisan message, a timely message about the world and its system. I'm coming to you this morning telling you that some people who are promising you freedom in Christ are slaves to the world. That's what Peter was dealing with, and that's what Paul was dealing with. For there were people saying, our way leads to the Holy One of Israel, and Paul was saying, no, it doesn't. I have distinctions that need to be made. I can show you the one who actually leads to freedom. And I can say that to you this morning. I will show you the one who actually leads to freedom. Even if your movement in this life may be restricted, even if you may be as you assess the world before you in this life, the world itself seems hopeless. I can tell you where the true freedom lies, because that's what Paul did. But that's also why if you want to give people freedom, you have to stay in the text. You have to stay in the word. If you want to give people slavery, feed them a consistent dose of cultural commentary. But I'll even further this with you. Romans 8, chapter 1, it says, therefore, tying us to everything that was said before in Romans 7, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, he's specific here. He not only tells us that there's no condemnation, but he tells us for whom there is no condemnation. And he tells us how. And as we reach through this passage all the way through Romans chapter nine, verse 11, I'm sorry, Romans chapter nine to chapter 11. We also see that he tells us when he tells us who he tells us what nations are involved. He tells us to whom this freedom will ultimately be granted. But do you know who is free? Do you know who is free? Because there's many people this hour who think their actions against the government alone make them free while they have unconfessed sin, while they haven't repented of their sin. They think they're free. That's not the kind of freedom I'm interested in. And that's certainly not the kind of freedom that Paul the Apostle is interested in. From our text, it says true believers who have a no condemnation status granted to them in the face of all attempts to assail them. So it's not without its challenges. It's not without its enemies. It's not without, quite frankly, the kingdom of darkness trying to take you out, wear you down, get you to focus on uh, the things of this world, the things that make you anxious, the things that make you frustrated, and to get you to focus on those things in such a way where you take your eyes off the cross and the coming of our Lord Jesus the Christ. But in the face of all attempts to assail them, be it from the flesh, be it from the world system, be it from false teachers, enemies of the cross, Satan, and onward from there, that in the face of all that, the believer has a no condemnation Status, Because Christ has satisfied the wrath of God meant against the unbelieving sinner whom he brings into his kingdom by faith in his name. But you also see something about this. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's dealing with eternal things. That now is definitive and it's emphatic. He's dealing with the fact that not only do true believers have this no condemnation status before God, because quite frankly, that's what the world is afraid of. That's why the world is taking great pains of self-preservation, hostility, all the things you see in this world today. The world is afraid to face God, but not the believer. The believer knows when I stand before God, I'm hidden in Christ. When I stand before God, I'm free. Because of what Christ has accomplished. I have nothing to fear, be it here or in eternity. But this declaration for the Christian, I want to encourage your heart today. If you are in Christ, I want to encourage you in this way. This declaration for the Christian is the only timeless resolution we have. Even in the new year, people make resolutions and promises and guarantees every single year. But ours is from year to year, from age to age, it is the same. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And so this fact that we have no condemnation, that we are delivered from bondage to sin, is a resolution that is an eternal resolution. If I could call the church at large to to do anything, it would be to start making again eternal resolutions. To say, here is where I stand Eternal, not temporally, not, oh, you know what, president I like is in office, so God's kingdom is upon us. Oh, you know what, president I, I don't like is in office, so now the world is given over to Satan. No, I want something eternal. No matter who's occupying the stage and the throne of the world's governments before us, as we have learned in Daniel, it all comes to a head in Christ Jesus. Even that is settled. Everything is settled. So my eternal resolution can be from age to age, I serve the one in whom I have no condemnation. God's wrath will not be poured out unto me in judgment if I confess the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord God and Savior. Confess my sins before him. Believe on the blood of the cross and believe on the work of the cross and thereby believe that I am saved by him. No condemnation. It's important to preach this specifically, isn't it? Because when you think about it, everybody's talking about we need to get back to the gospel, but they never get back to the gospel. They say we need to get back to the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. We need to talk about Jesus. But what they aren't doing is talking about Jesus and getting actually back to the gospel and speaking to Christians about the fact that if you are in Christ, you need not fear anything or anyone. You need not fear eternity. Because you're going to be with the one in whom you staked your entire claim of faith, true faith. Let me ask you a question. How do we know? Because that's what Paul will deal with. Paul will deal with this throughout Romans 8. Today is kind of an introduction of it. But how do we know? How do we know that we have no condemnation? Why are we here this morning? Why do we come together this morning in fellowship and we're talking about these things? How do we know? And if we and if we're able to know, how do we test if we have no condemnation? So those are the two questions that I would set before you. How do we know? And how do we test it? Look at verse two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. 
And he says further for what the law could not do. Weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that here's the purpose so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Look at this, because this is where the whole chapter is going. This last thing that said who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul related the faith and hopefulness that we have in Christ. This no condemnation status. It is something we know and something that we can prove and something that's proven to us based on our walk, based on our walk in the spirit, because here Paul, by the Holy Spirit, invokes a standard. He says this is the standard he's listed in other places, even throughout Romans, even throughout the beginning of Romans. Here are all the features and here are all the characteristics of people who walk in the flesh. And then here are all the characteristics and all the features of those who walk in the spirit. And so for the Romans to whom he's writing and for us, by implication, we have no condemnation and it is verified by the standard of our walk. I believe that this is where most people this hour are stumbling. Because they're walking according to the flesh. And so their arguments are fleshly. Their lives are fleshly. Their hope is fleshly. Their indignation is fleshly. Their frustration is fleshly. It's not they're not groaning in such a way so as to hope for the return of the Messiah. Because that's not what's on the register. What they're hoping for is a better tomorrow. They're hoping for some kind of temporal overthrow by partisan politics to right everything in this life before them. And then they're saying, well, we have no condemnation, but here, let me give you programs. Let me give you institutional commandments. Let me give you someone to hide it. But instead, what the Bible actually teaches is if I'm walking in the spirit, if I'm walking how God has commanded me to live, if I'm walking how God has commanded me to walk, then I know I have no condemnation because I can test that. And then I can, as our brother Matt prayed, I can compel others in evangelism to walk like this. I can tell them to repent. Trust in Christ alone and begin to walk and live for him. But that's not what's happening today. But this is timeless. If we walk in the spirit, if you are walking in the spirit, you can be assured that you are his. If you're walking in the spirit, you can be assured that you are his. Notice how simple that is. If you walk in the spirit. You belong to him. If you walk in the flesh, you do not belong to him. Walk not saying at the at certain times there are certain things that ail me. There are certain times in which I sin and I openly confess it. This is talking about a pattern of the life that is 
uh, that is uh, predisposed and headed in a certain direction that can be measured and tested. If we walk in the spirit, you can be assured you are his. And furthermore, you can be assured you will not face him in wrath and judgment. I will tell you, that is supposed to be for the Christian the greatest comfort. That should be the greatest comfort. For the unbeliever, it should be the greatest fear. Even if you are in perfect health and you do not know nor love nor honor the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be fearful. If you are in failing health, if all about the world around you is not going the way that you had hoped it would go, and yet you have ultimate faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his crosswork, you are the most hopeful of all people. You have no fear. You are fearless. The Christian ought to be fearless in this area. But I'll tell you, none of what Paul has said so far up to Romans 4, as we read up to that point, none of it is hypothetical. None of it is contingent on human action. I have to do something and then God will do something. Except the free gift of grace and the gift of faith and the gift of repentance that he gives. And the gift of divine election that he grants and then he grants his no condemnation status. The gift of regeneration it goes on and on and on. Because all those things are actually, as Paul wrote, actually granted to those who are his. But here he's dealing with a specific people. I know I've applied a lot of this to to our modern context, but he is dealing with uh, a certain people in the historical sense of this text. He's dealing with certain Jews who believe themselves to be bound to the law and believe that they've kept it perfectly. And Paul wanted to assure them that now that they now possess the law of the spirit if they indeed possess faith in Christ. So for those who believe they kept it perfectly, they've apostatized. For those who believe, well, what do I do in the face of the law now that I have Christ? Paul is saying you have Christ. He fulfilled it. Walk in him. And I would tell you that there is a law of Christ with which you and I are called as believers to walk in. We're called to live according to this new law. And so I ask... Well, what is this new law comprised of? Because there is a distinction. And that distinction is based on the fulfillment of Christ. Well, verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, new law and not really a new law, but what the old law should have pointed to for those who were by faith living according to the law. It has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Here, he certainly includes temporal life. Not in action, not in action, but temporal life. But a temporal life lived in a specific way, according to the law of Christ. Lived in the spirit of God and of Christ by his spirit. And now this freedom, this life is now granted in this way. It is eternal life.
that corresponds to eternal freedom. If you have eternal life, you have eternal freedom. Do you see how sinister it is to only speak to people about temporal life? Because then what can you only offer them? Temporal freedom. You can't give them eternal freedom if you're only talking to them constantly about the here and now. That will draw a crowd, but I'm interested in people being drawn to Christ. You also see it. You see it for yourself. How futile, in light of our text, how futile the world is today. How useless. How the world and her policies cannot stop death. The world and her policies cannot change your nature. In fact, the world has gotten so cold toward people that they hope you get sick. They hope you die so as to justify the laws that they are setting forth. They hope you die in some sick game of I told you so. I'm holier than you because I followed government policy. But that is not what Christ is offering. Christ is saying today, do not harden your heart. I'm dealing with eternal freedom. I'm dealing with eternal life. And I hope you repent before the time is up. But all the world has to offer. And when I say the world, I'm speaking of those men even who pretend to be religious and have no hope in Christ themselves. And yet they claim to speak for him every time they open their mouths. But they're deceived. In all those things, all they can do is both incite and then try to manage fear. That's it. That's the world system in a nutshell. That's false teaching in a nutshell. Incite fear and then manage fear. There's no hope. Incite fear, manage fear. But not us. Not the Christians. Not the true church, both here and abroad or wherever she is to be found. Because there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's fitting that this passage, if you look at verse one, the connector between the two sections, therefore, immediately this also follows the spiritual war that one must fight in their own lives. Where they must be fighting against the flesh or they must be at war against sin in their members. Well, that's an evidence. That's an evidence of these things. That the evidence of me having a no condemnation status before God is that I'm at war with sin in myself. That's the evidence. I often get the question, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Those are some of the evidences. I'm warring against sin in my members. I'm not going sinless. We don't teach that here. We don't teach sinless perfectionism. But what we do teach is that you're at war with sin. And you're sinning with less less frequency because you're overcoming sin until the end of your life where you will finally be glorified with Christ and the body of sin done away with. But that's our hope. That's our hope. I see in Romans 7, 14 to 25, a man of a tender conscience. Who's at war, this intense war within himself. He's not just going with the flow. 
He's not just doing what works, pragmatism. He's also not dealing with you, uh, utilitarianism, the greater good, even if the greater good is evil. It's just after the greater good. He's dealing with what is good in the eyes of God, and I had better be after that. And let me fight the war in myself if I see anything in myself that's not going in that direction. That's an ongoing thing. There's an agony in that. Jesus even talked about it when he talked about mortification in the Gospels. But that's the issue. That's the issue, dear saints. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, nothing can separate us from him. If we have no condemnation from him, there's nothing that can separate us from him. And so you see, we need to be set free from our greatest captor. We need to be set free from our greatest captor. That is the sin nature. That is sin overall. That is the fact that the effects of those things is that we've been alienated from God until we are reconciled to him in Christ Jesus. The second part of Romans chapter 8 verse 2. He says, Christ Jesus, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The law of sin. I like how he joins those together because there's a whole lot of talk about death today. But there's not a whole lot of talk about sin. He joins them together. I, you, if you are in Christ, we, we want to be free from sin and death. We're not just trying to figure out ways to live. We're trying to figure out ways to live unto Christ. We're not just considering that we may one day die. We're considering that in light of our sins, what has happened so that we may not face eternal death. It's both. He joins them together because that is what Jesus has come to set us free from. He set us free from the law of sin and death. Here, Paul maintains the goodness of God and his holy law, both together. Because the holy law expresses God's infinite goodness. It expresses it. What Paul is dealing with are the effects and consequences of violating God's holy law. He bridges the two. And he did so from Romans 1 all the way to Romans 7. He says... These are the things that the Gentiles have done that reveal that they're alienated from God. They're at war with him. They're enemies of him. Oh, and Jews, if you think that that is bad, here's what you've done to alienate yourselves from God, to be at war against him. And for them, it was their approach to the law. For the Gentiles, it was lawlessness. But what he's saying is this is the effect. We need to be free from the effect, self-inflicted effects. It is why he indeed says you have been set free from the law of sin and of death. Listen to me this morning. Everything is distracting people from this reality. We have reached a stage in the theater of spiritual warfare where the game is distraction. It's distraction. 
vaccinated versus unvaccinated, Democrats versus Republicans, free states versus states that are bound to protocols. All of those are distractions. Because what do we need? We really need to be free from sin and death, whether you get jabbed in your arm or you don't. You need to be free from sin and death. You decide what's best for you and for your family, but you need to be free from sin and death. And a whole lot of people are making a whole lot of money talking about everything except what I'm saying to you this morning. Buildings are being filled. People are leaving states, headed to states. People are going into megachurches and leaving megachurches based on what the man is saying about his position concerning partisan politics and health. I'm here to deal with spiritual health. We're here to deal with spiritual health. And if you're a Christian, that's what you want people to speak to. I need to hear something for my spirit. I need to hear something for my soul. I need to know that I'm free in Christ. Or if I'm not free in Christ, tell me, preacher, how can I be free and made right with God? That's the greatest need that I have. That's the greatest need that I have. Whether I'm well or whether I'm sick. I need to be right with God. But I'll tell you, he says something about the law in verse three, that the law was weak. The law was weak, not because God is weak. For God is all powerful. The law was weak, not because the law is defective or ineffective. And I'm talking about God's holy law as given to Moses and all that that entails. As we understand the Mosaic Covenant. But Paul is clear that the law is weak through the flesh. The law is weak through the flesh. I'm hearing a lot of people appropriate government and U.S. and global law, but they speak nothing of Mosaic law. They're not saying anything about the law of Christ. The issue is the law is weak through the flesh. Man's flesh, and you'll see as we work our way through this portion of Romans and throughout the book itself, you'll see that the word flesh is used in different ways. But in this case, it's his sinful nature. He's dealing with sinful nature. Because the law, it became weak in the way that man's flesh is weak. And so when man appropriates the law, it causes an excitement in himself to transgress the law. You remember that from Exodus. As Moses is receiving the law, the people are violating the law he's about to give to them. And so by the time the law comes to them, they're guilty before the law. uh, This morning, we just went over Leviticus. And you see, well, why is that even necessary? Why are these laws necessary? Well, the laws are necessary to show that people are guilty in the face of it, to show that there is one who has to come to put an end to that whole system. Because in people's flesh, they cannot rightly appropriate the law. That people become a law unto themselves. They sin against God when faced with God's requirements through the law. And so I say it again. You see, the great Gentile hypocrisy is everybody wants you to obey the laws of the land without fail, without compromise. And when you bring before them the perfect holy law, they begin to make every excuse in the book as to why that law is not bound to them. 
and why they're not bound to that law. But the issue is, you cannot have mere men try to attain to the righteousness of God, the eternal righteousness that he requires in the face of his wrath against sinners. You can't have man do that on his own. He can't get there. So here, Paul points us uh, in the direction of understanding these things as to what may take place for the one who needs to be freed. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did. We couldn't do it. You and I couldn't do it. God had to do something. So all this idea of decisionism and you doing something on your own and you doing something for yourself and people saying that you don't have to do something and saying that God is sovereign, but introducing all this pragmatism to try to get you to do something because God needs help. God already did it. He did it. God did. What did he do? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, specific people doing specific things, but according to the spirit. I'll unpack that briefly here. God himself sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. I don't shy away from that term. I don't shy away from the fact that it says the likeness of sinful flesh. But we do need to explain why it's said that way. What this means then is God sends his perfectly holy, perfectly righteous and perfectly just son upon the earth. Let's start there. Because so many don't start there when they begin to talk about the incarnation and Christ coming and his life and his perfect uh, uh, sinless life and the vicariousness of his life. But he sends them. He's perfect in every way. But he sends them to make propitiation, that is, satisfaction of wrath on behalf of another or against another. And to make substitutionary atonement, that is, to sacrifice on behalf of of another for sinners who were in the flesh. So this is not saying at all. This phrase is not saying that Jesus was a sinner. And it is not saying since Jesus inherently took on human flesh as being God, which we learn from passages like Philippians 2, as being God who took on human flesh, that somehow taking upon this flesh rendered Christ sinful before God necessitating God to judge sin. That is not what it's saying. It is speaking of appearances. Even the word likeness deals with appearances. How things appear. Christ came upon the earth appearing to us in the flesh. He looked like you and I. Isaiah 53 tells you that. He didn't come floating on a pillar of clouds. He didn't come with a halo around about him. He came looking like men. He came looking like men who are sinful in the flesh and looking like men who are sinners. He came looking that way. But there was something very much different about him. Perfection. Righteousness. Eternal righteousness. He was it and he possessed it. And he is it. 
It's speaking of appearances. In his nature, he's God in human flesh. He's perfect. His taking upon flesh, then, if you understand the direction of the text, his taking upon flesh was not for the purpose of taking on sinfulness in his nature. That's not why he came. So people who say that about him are blaspheming him. He did not come for that reason. He didn't come to take on sinfulness in and of himself to be a sinner. Because then we're hopeless. Let's pack up everything and let's leave. There's no reason to continue any of this. But because of what is right and true in this text, we continue. He was perfect. His appearance rather was to take upon flesh. And Paul gives you the purpose to take upon flesh for this reason. So as to condemn sin in the flesh. That's why he came in the flesh. That's why he appeared in the likeness of sinful flesh. It was to perfectly atone for sinners. For the elect, so that they may be free from the curse, consequence and penalty of sin. The famous passage in John three, known to many all the way throughout, but specifically 16 and beyond deal with this very thing. And so it is not also that he has simply appeared as some apparition. His appearance as a man was certain. But his taking upon himself flesh, uniting the two natures in himself, deity and humanity, that had a purpose. It had a purpose. And the purpose was for atonement and propitiation. Satisfy God's wrath for dying on the cross for sinners. That's why he came. He wanted to bring them reconciliation to God before God. He wanted to bring them no condemnation before God. That's why he came. So here flesh is indeed understood in its context that he took on humanness and all it requires except this because there is distinction. So these people who are building kingdoms trying to make God appear as a sinner. That's blasphemy. He was distinct. He took on flesh and humanness and all it requires except being God in human flesh. No one else came in that way ever except Jesus. He did not possess a change in his essential nature as deity whereby he became a sinner. It is saying he appeared as a man, not only in humanness, but as a man in sinful flesh, though he was not a sinner. He appeared that way. There's a sin offering that's in play that needs to be rendered and it needs to be perfect. His flesh did not derive from sin, but you see it in the text. It said God sent him in verse three. He derived from God. He derived from God. He is God. So he's perfectly righteous. He takes on human flesh. He lives a sinless life. And he is forever God in human flesh. And he did all this because he is all powerful to do what sinful human beings could not do in the face of law and in the face of God. For Adam's race, and you know them well in the world before you, there's only condemnation. Everything they do, everything they say, every policy they come up with. Everything they try to do to correct the world before them, it leads and demonstrates, it leads to condemnation and it demonstrates that they are under condemnation. 
It's Adam's race. But we don't want to be identified with Adam's race. We belong to Christ. We want to be identified with the second Adam. So there's a distinction. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. It's evidenced by the standard of our walk in the spirit. That's how I know if I have no condemnation. That I look at the word of God and see what it says about how might I walk before him. And if I'm not doing those things, I fall on my face before him and I repent and I cry out to him for mercy and I cry out to him for salvation. And in the faith that he hears me, the evidence of a changed life is also the evidence that I have no condemnation before him. That's the evidence. The purpose of all that has been said so far is where we'll close today in verse four, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is so the righteousness of the law could be fulfilled. This was the error of the Jews. And it is also the error of any who try to gain perfect righteousness by their own action. The law must be fulfilled by Christ. Because in being fulfilled by Christ, we are then joined to him. And now we can say the law is then fulfilled in us. So I don't have to fear stipulations in the Mosaic law. I don't have to fear what the Old Testament Jews had to endure. I don't have to fear any of that because I am now in Christ Jesus. And he's fulfilled it all. And he's fulfilled it all in us. Because he dwells in us. That's amazing. But more importantly, you have to see it for what it is. It's what God is owed. In the face of eternal transgression, he's owed eternal righteousness. You and I can't do that on our own. This status, there's no condemnation before God. We do it because God has given it to us and because he has willed it so. And only Christ can bring the Jew and Gentile before God by the blood of his cross, by his sinlessness, and in doing so satisfies God's wrath against the sinner. Where God replaces his own wrath and instead says, I grant to you no condemnation. Not replaces in the sense that something hasn't been done for it, but that it has been fulfilled. And it's been fulfilled by way of the great exchange. Placing the rebellious sinner's sins upon Christ and then charging to the believing, once unbelieving sinner, the righteousness of Christ. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. The eternal demand of judgment and punishment for those who confess Christ Jesus are met in Christ Jesus. And all those stipulations for Jew and then for Gentile are now fulfilled in Christ. Him dwelling in us are fulfilled in us. This is the only law I'm concerned with. I'm only concerned with the law of Christ. I'm acquainted with the laws of the world. I'm, I'm acquainted with the law of the land. I am. And sometimes I, get, I can get as frustrated as you do. But the law that really, really, really grabs my attention is the law of Christ. Because that deals with me for eternity. That deals with me for eternity. That's what I want. The world is futile today. Her system is only there to incite fear because of who owns it. To incite and influence death. To make threats. With no claim to bring man before God in eternity. That's the greatest issue. 
It's not that I want somebody else to step in place and engineer those laws. The issue is those laws don't bring me before God in reconciliation. I need a law that does that. The law of Christ. Because 100 percent, everyone will face him. 100 percent. It's guaranteed. So that none of this is hypothetical. We know what has been achieved with this great status and the blessing that I wanted to give to you this morning. The encouragement is we can measure it and we can test it. We know what we've been given. We can measure it. and We can test it. For almost like bookends, Paul reminds us he closes in the same way that he began. The law is fulfilled in us, but not according to the flesh. By that, the sin principle inherent in those who bear the sin nature. For as Paul said earlier, those who walk in the flesh must die. But yet we know we have no condemnation according to his spirit, the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.